in the Buddhist teachings, <clears throat> there are two main streams of meditation, or bhavana, as Kamala defined the term the other night, that are talked about. One is the stream of practice that is based on the development of concentration primarily. <clears throat> the other is the stream of practice that is based primarily on the development of insight, which comes through the cultivation of mindfulness. And while certainly there is mindfulness in concentration practice and definitely concentration in mindfulness practice, there are also ways of seeing how things are, are somewhat different depending on which of those qualities you consider to be actually the essence, the foundation of your practice, and which you consider to be sort of in a supporting role. In practices that primarily are based on the development of concentration, the end result is said to be purity of mind. That means that the kalesas or torments of the mind or defilements in the common translation are put aside so that we experience some tranquility, a sense of peace, a feeling of being unshaken, sense of one-pointedness or steadiness of mind. When we begin meditation practice of any kind, of course, our minds jump everywhere. They oscillate constantly from whatever object we've chosen as our object of concentration to everything else in the universe. But slowly over time, as concentration deepens, even though all of those distractions might come up, they're not quite as disturbing to us anymore. It's almost like there gets to be a certain transparency to them. They don't feel so overwhelmingly solid all of the time. And as we continue practicing, they feel less solid more of the time. And then even though they keep arising and they keep arising, whatever defilement it is, whichever hindrance it might be, they start to recede rather quickly, certainly more quickly than they once did. To practice concentration in the classical sense means that we do have a chosen object. It might be the breath, it might be one of the Brahma-viharas, and we let go of everything else that arises, all other phenomena. So we almost have a sense of protecting that object and cherishing that object, not clutching it really tightly or harshly, because that will make concentration actually weaker, but very much in that sense of just bringing our attention close and letting go of anything else. Michelangelo was once asked how he would carve an elephant, and he replied by saying, I would take a large piece of stone and then take away everything that was not the elephant. And this is what we do. We just let go of everything that is not whatever, the breath, the Brahma-vihara phrase, whatever our chosen object is. In a way, because of that, there's a, a sneaky kind of insight that comes because it's a very non-dualistic awareness of all these other things. It doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful thought in the world or the most terrible you have ever encountered. It's simply not the breath or not the phrase, and you gently let go. At the same time that we're letting go, we're gathering our energy in. 
again and again, all of that energy, which, well, think back to your last scattered sitting. You know, whenever, <laughs> however long ago that was. <laughs> the most scattered one you've had recently. And just feel your way back into that energy, what the energy felt like. As your mind went to the past and went to the future and went all over the place, that's a lot of energy. And it could be reclaimed by us, so you just gather it back. And you do it again, and you do it again. Over time, we do that enough, we return the attention to the chosen object, then what arises is what's called classically a sense of seclusion. The mind withdraws from the defilements as they arise. It's not so pleasant to go there. You don't really want to play in that playground much anymore. And so the mind wants to be more cohered, more settled on the object, and it will continue to discard in a very gentle and natural way, not harshly or with judgment, all of the distractions that come by. It's a very wholesome mind. There's nothing wrong with letting go. I often use the example of, say we brought our car into a car mechanic to be repaired for all the obvious reasons we want them to be very focused on what they're doing. It might mean time, it might mean money. We might get into a really bad accident if they don't really concentrate on what they're doing. So as they're working on our car, maybe some thought of a problem at home or you know, getting a new job or something like that comes up in their minds. They don't have to hate the thought and fret about it and be all upset about it, but really our big preference is that they just put it aside <laughs> and say, not right now. We do that because it's important. There could be a lot of consequences to not concentrating. And we do that just out of devotion to a craft, doing something very, very well, so that we're not fragmented or scattered as we do it, but are really completely wholeheartedly gathered in that way. It needs to be, from the point of view of the meditation practice, it needs to be ethical or wholesome. Otherwise, it's the wrong kind of concentration. The, the traditional example is always used of a cat concentrating on a mouse hole, waiting for the mouse to appear so it can kill it and eat it, which is not considered right concentration. <laughs> you know, so there's the eightfold path with all the rights. It's right concentration. It needs to be a wholesome or skillful object that's being concentrated on and a wholesome quality of attention Then, as we practice non-distractedness, there will be greater and greater moments of calm that come, with the mind not wavering all of the time and not so shaken by everything that comes, comes up. In the Buddhist psychology, when different qualities are described, they're often described in terms of their, their function, their manifestation, their characteristic, and their proximate cause. The proximate cause is the condition or the ground that most easily gives rise to a particular quality. So, for example, the proximate cause of metta or loving-kindness is said to be seeing the good in someone, whether it's ourselves or somebody else. It's not the only way that 
metta will arise. But it's a likely and easy springboard for metta to arise if we can only see the good. And as we've talked about before in those times when that is simply not possible, to remember that all beings want to be happy, that this is something we all share, this is another proximate cause. To have that understanding more easily gives rise to loving-kindness. So concentration, as well, has a proximate cause. Early in my practice, if asked what it was, I would certainly have said something like massive effort or frightening zeal or something like that. But actually it's not. The classical description of the proximal cause of concentration is said to be happiness. It's odd, isn't it? (laughs) When the mind is happy, which doesn't mean the ordinary sense of happiness, which is experiencing pleasure, but when we have a certain serenity, a certain tranquility, a certain ease, then that is the proximate cause for concentration to more easily arise. It's not some awful, terrible straining to get the mind to stay on an object and glue it there and somehow repulse and hate everything that comes by to distract you. It's not that kind of ferocity. It's happiness. I sometimes tell the story of how I first met Joseph. I just told it not too long ago when I was introducing him for a talk he was giving somewhere, public talk. Uh, I had gone to India in 1970 and entered my first intensive meditation retreat in 1971 in Bodh Gaya. When I got there and plunged into this 10-day retreat, I had never practiced even for one moment beforehand. So I was in for a very big surprise. (laughs) I sat down, and I... The first instruction was to sit down and feel the breath, which I could not do. It felt like for half a breath, I would feel some part of a breath, some fraction of a breath, and my mind would go off to the past, to the future, tremendous amount of judgment. Or I'd get sleepy, I'd get restless, or something would hurt, or I'd get confused, or all kinds of things would happen. By the third day of the retreat, I was so angry at this process and so angry at myself that I said, okay, the next time my mind wanders, I'm just going to bang my head against the wall. (laughs) And I meant it too. But very fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. And... The retreats we were attending in those days were not completely silent. In subsequent years, they were more fully silent. But in those early years, there were silent days and silent periods, but not the whole retreat. So this was a lunch that was not silent. I was standing there on the lunch line, fretting about my morning. And I heard this conversation going on just behind me. It was, it was two men, and one said to the other, well, how was your morning? And the other man responded with a parent, great lightness of spirit and ease of heart. And he said, well, couldn't concentrate at all, but maybe this afternoon will be better. And I turned around, quite appalled, and I, think, I thought, doesn't he understand how serious this stuff is? And, you know, 
doesn't he, doesn't he know how to practice? You know, where's his strain and everything like that? And of course, that was Joseph. <laughs> and that's how we met. And the difference between us at the time was that I had practiced for three days, and he'd been practicing for about four years, maybe even a little more. And he just had the kind of perspective that comes from realizing you go through lots of changes. Things are different all of the time. You can't always tell what's good, what's bad. You just have to keep doing it. He had the happiness of a, a larger perspective. So that's one very definite way to have the kind of happiness that is the, the proximal cause of concentration. Another, which is the most traditional, is through having a very strong commitment to leading a moral life, which means a life of simplicity. It's hard enough with all the things we've done in the past that come back to haunt us. You know, the things we said that we really wished we hadn't or the times we were really afraid to say anything when we really should have and, you know, times we, we behave badly and we hurt somebody or hurt ourselves. But that's all done. You know, there's nothing we can do about that. We can, however, make a commitment to really clarify and simplify our lives, to live more truthfully, so that we don't have to perpetuate those patterns. Both the commitment and the execution of that commitment bring a great deal of happiness to the mind. Because it is just so unpleasant to have all of those ripples of of guilt and shame and regret and paranoia, you know, and all of that round and round and round and round. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, it's kind of classical, of talking about somebody really unkindly and then having them walk in the room and your stomach just drops and you think, did they hear? How much did they hear? What did I say? You know, maybe they could tell I was joking. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of unclarity where we can't just say what we want to say or do what we want to do, but we have to constantly check and be afraid that it might get found out or, you know, it's, it's just so unpleasant. And it all comes back, doesn't it? <laughs> so that the, the progression in Buddhist teaching, as is you know, most classically taught, is to begin with acts of generosity because they brighten the mind and make us happy and we always have something to give always it's something everyone can practice even if you have nothing materially or almost nothing materially you can do something in the way of generosity just by your presence by a smile by caring making some some kind of sharing act and that will, will bring light to the mind because it's a joyous thing to do. And then morality, which will set the stage for not being so afraid all of the time and, and not being so anxious, which is its own very special kind of happiness. And based on that comes the ability to concentrate. With those things in place, the the wisdom of a long-term perspective and the stability of a life that's being lived ethically, we can be happy, we can concentrate. It's not a, a dull concentration, or as 
one of my Tibetan teachers, Sokhni Rinpoche, calls it stupid meditation, which can also be cultivated. We have to have some interest. We have to have some energy because if we're bored and we're sleepy and we're not really connected, we're not coming close to that object of concentration, we're not going to really connect to it. If we do come close and connect and continually let go of what distracts us, it's really, it's like that gathering movement. And so the feeling of it is one of unification. Aspects of our minds, of our hearts that have been disparate and spread out and fragmented are brought together into wholeness. That feeling of union, of landing, of of connection is the kind that most of us have yearned for and have looked for in so many places outside of ourselves. To not be divided, not be fragmented, nothing held back. It's an extraordinary state. Because it happens within rather than dependent on another person or another situation, there can be extraordinary, extraordinary bliss, actually, in that state. The texts in talking about how to develop strong concentration say, purify your conduct, find a good friend, that means a meditation teacher, find a suitable place, which means a forest, a grove of trees, the roots of trees, a quiet place, and develop the concentration object. Again, this is the classical way where you're mostly focusing your practice on the development of concentration. It said that the Buddha taught 40 different objects of concentration, all of which bring this sense of oneness, of wholeness, of the mind united rather than split apart. Of the 40 Ten are what are called casino meditations, where you have an object or a device. Say you're focusing on the quality of earth, and so you have an, a circle made out of earth, and you focus on that, or different colors of um, blue and yellow and red and white. You can focus on light or on space. There are ten that are called recollections. That's concentrating and recollecting on, say, the qualities of the Buddha that He discovered the path himself, that he left us this incredible legacy, that he was an incomparable leader, an incomparable teacher. Qualities of the Dharma, that, as they say, it's good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good at the end, unlike many things which are good in the beginning but not at the end or, or the other way around. That the Dharma invites inspection, that there's nothing hidden, there's nothing that can't be questioned that the Dharma, the truth of the Dharma, is realizable by beings here and now. It's not something, we're not doing preparatory work now for, say, for an afterlife. It's something that can be realized in its full truth by any of us here and now. Reflecting on the qualities of the Sangha, the community, the monastic community, the enlightened community, the qualities of one's own virtue is one of the objects of of concentration. Sometimes that, you know, can be a little mysterious. In fact, uh, 
sometimes that particular concentration object is given, as I'll say later, you know, they're, they're all given at different times for balance, but um, sometimes if somebody's feeling a little down on themselves or a little distressed, a meditation teacher will encourage them, well, you know, think about your own good qualities. Think about uh, your own virtue. And, and I can remember once when uh, Joseph and I were practicing together in Burma, and, and he might have told this story, I don't know, but uh, I might have told the story <laughs> for all I know. Uh, but <laughs> the, the way uh, interviews went in Burma, you, you're sitting in the back of the room waiting for your turn, so you hear the whole story of the person in front of you, you hear their interview, and then when it's your turn, you go up front and somebody you know is waiting in the back for their turn, and they're hearing your whole thing. So I was right behind Joseph, so for three months I heard his whole thing. And um, uh, One day, I don't know what he was going through, but Upandita looked at him and said, uh, you should go back to your room and contemplate your morality which Joseph took as a kind of threat, <laughs> you know? Like, I see something really bad you've done, and then, uh, you don't know what you've done, so you have to go back and think about it. But, you know, he didn't mean it like that, Upandita. He just meant, you know, do this out of joy, because it's, it's a reflection that brings a lot of joy. The reflections on the power of generosity, the reflections on death, on the inevitability of death. There's a reflection on the breath paying attention to the breath or to the body. Four of the objects, four of the 40 objects of concentration are the Brahma-viharas. Infinite loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. There are 10 objects of concentration which are called the Asuba objects or the loathsome objects, which is another very bad translation, uh, which means things like contemplating a skeleton or one's own body as a skeleton, as a corpse, and so on. There is an analysis of the four elements of earth, air, water, and fire. There's so many different kinds of objects. And in, in the ancient days, like in the time of the Buddha, very often the progression was you practice generosity, morality, a particular concentration object until you attained a good degree of concentration, and then you went on and opened up your awareness and practiced vipassana or insight. And which particular object of concentration you were given depended on who you were and what you needed to bring into balance. Since everything is really about balance in the end in this path, so if a person was very fearful or very angry, they might be given loving-kindness as their own particular concentration object. If they had a tremendous amount of lust or desire, they might be given one of the, the Asuba meditations, like the skeleton or the corpse or something like that. If they were very heedless and careless and reckless kind of people, they might be given a recollection on death. And then there were some that were considered absolutely appropriate for anybody, like observing the breath. And it's said that the genius of a person like the Buddha was that he could look at somebody and see what they needed to do as their particular object of concentration. It's also true that 
if great depths of concentration are achieved, from that place of depth, of quiet, when the mind turned toward insight, then it was very powerful. In in and of itself, the concentration wasn't enough. But because it cut through to such a deep level, because the energy had come together so powerfully, if you used that concentration and then observed your experience, then you could make progress very quickly. There's this very uh, sweet story in the text about this, this dullard in the time of the Buddha, somebody who was not very intelligent and who became a monk. Now I asked Joseph, this is one of Joseph's favorite stories, and I asked him just before if he told the story already, and he said no, right? Okay. And then I thought maybe he forgot. <laughs> so, okay. so this dullard became a monk, but it said that uh, he was so unintelligent that if he tried to memorize a four-line verse, the last two lines would push out the first two, which I can actually relate to. So one day he was very, very frustrated in trying to memorize this four-line verse and understand what they meant and understand the teachings of the Buddha. And his brother, who was also a monk, came up to him and said, you know, you're so really stupid that you're kind of a disgrace to the teachings of the Buddha, which are so perfect and so pure and You can't even memorize this four-line verse, so I think you need to leave the order. So he threw him out. And the the young monk, the dullard, as they say, was very upset because he so much wanted to be a monk, and he was running through the forest crying when he came upon the Buddha himself. And the Buddha stopped him and said, what's the matter? Why are you crying? And uh, he said, well, my brother threw me out of the order. And this is one of my favorite Buddha stories as well as Joseph's. He said... It said that at that moment, the Buddha came up to him and began stroking his head and said, well, whose order is it anyway? Your brothers are mine. (laughs) So the the Dullard said, well, it's your order of monks. And the Buddha said, listen, you can stay. He said, continue to be a monk, and I'm going to give you a special meditation. So he told him to take a handkerchief, a very clean piece of cloth, and to begin rubbing it, just to rub it and rub it repeating the phrase, removal of impurities, removal of impurities over and over again, like a mantra. So he went off, and the young monk stayed there and began doing that meditation, just repeating that phrase over and over again. As he did that, his mind got much more concentrated and much clearer. He kept rubbing the cloth, and because of just the body secretions, the sweat that were coming out of his fingers, the cloth was getting dirtier dirtier and dirtier, even though his, he was saying removal of impurities, removal of impurities. And from a very deeply concentrated place, he looked at that cloth, saw how dirty it was, reflected on the nature of what was pure and what was impure, and as they say, got fully enlightened. And then there's actually a little cap to that story where... Um, it said that with his enlightenment, he also developed a, a big range of psychic powers, of supernormal powers. So he flew back to the grove and did all of these dazzling miracles in front of his brother. <laughs> Didn't take it too well. 
So all of these practices, whatever they are, are meant to bring a great depth of concentration and balance. They're not meant to provoke attachment on the one hand or aversion or anger or fear on the other. And this is difficult for us to understand, especially perhaps in the the range of, of practices that were about what they call the loathsome nature of the body, which isn't supposed to be about developing um, judgment and dislike and hatred. It's about coming to a place of balance. I have a friend who, uh, at one point, he went off to Thailand with his practices often done. Every meditation hall in Thailand just about will have a skeleton hanging in it. And this friend came back, and it was just about... It was sometime in October when he came back, and I said, well, I called him and I said, how are you? You know, how was it? And he said, I'm doing really well. I'm just hanging up my skeleton. And that was very confusing. So I said, oh, for Halloween? <laughs> are you decorating this year? And he said, no, no. I just spent a month contemplating skeletons, and I really got into it. I really enjoyed the practice. So I said, well, how was it? And he said, at first it was absolutely disgusting. But something happened so that some important balance came to be for him so that he felt very free, especially in this society where something like death is so hidden, where it can often be considered so disgraceful, so wrong, you know, as though somebody did something wrong, when it's humiliating to have a body that's not perfect and not perfectly functioning. and It's an incredible balance. There's nothing to be afraid of in that or disgusted in, with that. But it's very difficult, and so there's a practice. In any of these practices, as the mind gets more concentrated and the <clears throat> defilements or hindrances are held off more, it's almost like a fence has gotten built in the mind. The hindrances are there, but they can't quite reach our centermost being. They're not uprooted, but they're held away very strongly. And after quite a lot of practice, the mind will reach what's called momentary concentration, where we can keep collected on the object of concentration, whether it's the breath or whatever, for a little while. At first, it's, it's unsteady, like a child who's just learning how to walk. But over time, we kind of like to be there. And so the mind gets steadier and steadier. And if one is pursuing this as a path, if this is really the essence of what we want, of what we're doing, then over time that momentary concentration grows into what are called the jhanic states, which are states of absorption, where, you know, as Kamala mentioned, the, uh, in the first jhana, the, the factors of um, aiming the attention, sustaining the attention, rapture, happiness, and one-pointedness are extremely strong. They're like paramount in a certain balance. And on through these different jhanic states, of which there, there are said to be eight, which symbolize a tremendous level of of experience within conditioned reality. 
the Buddha practiced the jhanas before he came to be sitting under the Bodhi tree that night. He talked many times about jhanic experience in his teaching, but it was always considered as something different than the attainment of freedom. In fact, in in Burma, countries like Burma, they talk about it as as jhanic play. It's like really playing with your mind in a way that's very unusual. To have any level of, of concentration, even if it's just momentary concentration or something approaching momentary concentration where your energy can actually coalesce, let alone the jhanas, does have benefits. It's said to purify what are called the obsessive defilements, the greed or the jealousy or the anger, whatever it is that just haunt us by their obsessive nature. Because we have a certain steadiness of mind from concentration. Those factors can't reach quite so deep. There's a sense of happiness, of wholeness, that can be beyond anything we know in our ordinary pursuits in the day. So we feel kind of independent in a new way. We don't have to clutch so hard to the changing experiences of the world. And so it's very purifying, it's very healing. But in the end, it said that pure concentration, just the development of concentration, doesn't do anything to eradicate ignorance. And since ignorance is the root of our suffering, it means that pure concentration won't do anything to really, in the end, eradicate suffering. It's not like having a real home or a real refuge, because it's still within conditioned reality, which means that conditions have to come together in a certain way for the experience of concentration to arise. And this is something we all know whether it's a little bit of concentration or a great big amount of concentration. Most of the, I don't know what you'd call them, really fun things about meditation practice have to do with the development of concentration. If you're feeling really good in practice, extraordinarily peaceful, quiet, very few thoughts maybe are arising, your body feels light, you feel all of this joy, very often it's because of the development of a strong degree of concentration, which is great. It's wonderful. But it's nothing to cling to because it's so conditioned. And we all know this. You know, Think back to your best sitting here in the sense of most highly concentrated, where you just felt like you could sit here forever and you regretted deeply that the retreat would ever have to end. And it was... It was just so fantastic, even just a few moments, you know, it was so great. And then somebody sneezes. This immense paranoia comes up. How close are they? You know, do I have enough vitamin C? You know, where are my tissues? I'm going to get sick. Oh, no. How can they sit, sit in the hall if they have a cold? Why are they here? You know, they should go home. You know, don't they know I was having the best sitting of my life? And, you know, and they ruined it. And you're full of anger and distress and fear. And concentration is just gone. It's like that. Inevitably, it's like that. We can't 
control ultimately the conditions of life. We certainly can't control the external conditions of life. And we see we can't control the internal conditions of life. You're sitting there in great bliss and somebody sneezes. You might snap at yourself. Don't react. (laughs) But that doesn't mean you're not going to (laughs) react. Because when the conditions come together in a certain way, that's what happens. So while concentration is fantastic and it's wonderful and it's very important to learn how to have the mind steadier, you don't really want to have it alone as the foundation of your meditation practice because it will be here and it will be gone. And you'll be very afraid all of the time. I sometimes tell a story, which some of you probably lived through, when I was uh, teaching in New York once, a few years ago. And I was teaching in this uh, Tibetan center down in Soho, which is a beautiful center, but um, couldn't be approached through the front of the building. You had to go all the way around the back of the building, down this alleyway to get into the room that was the actual center. So the first night I was there, I went in to teach, and I... You know, spoke about something, and then um, I gave the very first meditation instruction, which, as a prelude to the breath, I started with, let's sit down and just listen to sound. And that moment, some guy came into the alleyway, and he started screaming obscenities, and <laughs> that very moment, and, you know, and he'd call out somebody's name, and this whole long list of obscenities, and then someone else's name, and this whole long list of obscenities, and... <laughs> You know, sitting there thinking, well, how many people does he know? You know, it's like, it just went on and on and on. Of course, everyone was completely hysterical. You know, and then when I ended the sitting, I said, you know, I give that instruction in Barry, you know, and you hear like little birds chirping, you know. You hear the wind rustling through the trees, and it's all so nice, and... But life isn't like that, you know. It's not under our command. Sometimes some guy wanders into the alleyway, and it's not what you wanted to have happen. Somebody sneezes in the hall. Things are disrupted. Conditions don't come together in the way they would have to for us to be strongly concentrated. So it may not feel the same, but it can be very, very powerful and important practice. It's said that the path of concentration in and of itself doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to power. And this is the, the path that people take um, in the traditional Buddhist sense, the Theravadan understanding, to develop psychic powers. That there actually is a way <clears throat> to make the world very elastic so that time and space and matter and solidity don't apply in the ways that they normally do. It's said in the Buddhist teaching that all of this happens within the laws of nature, and we call it paranormal here, but it's only paranormal depending on how we define normal. So it may not be something we can understand, but at least traditionally it's said that this is how it happens, that people can, well, like the dullard after his enlightenment, you know, went back to the grove where his brother was and manifested a thousand other bodies just to show him, you know, 
um, it said that beings can take different forms. They can go back in time. They can read the future. Um, and it's not unknown, actually. We have had this one teacher, Deepama, who perhaps has been mentioned before in the retreat, who uh, was a Bengali woman trained in Burma, who'd gone through tremendous suffering in her life with the loss of her children. Um, two, two of her children died and loss of her husband and was in very ill health and very frail and then uh, began to practice meditation on the advice of her doctor who told her that uh, she was actually going to die of a broken heart unless she did something about her mind and went to a monastery in Burma where she was living to meditate, was an extraordinary meditator who was trained very profoundly in both the path of insight and the path of concentration by Menindra, who's her teacher. And um, By the time we met her, uh, this certainly wasn't something that she would ever show off or, or, or boast about, but uh, through Menindra, largely, we would hear all of these stories about things she had done, and, and because he knew us and trusted us, he would let us ask her questions, you know, and she would say things like, uh, she would go back in time to hear the Buddha give a talk. Um, so someone asked her, Michelle, I think, asked her, how did you do that? And she said, I'd go back mind moment by mind moment. Um, and, you know, there were lots of stories about her, um, you know, being in two places at once and, and uh, all kinds of things that were were researched. But when anyone talks about Deepama, the thing that we really talk about is not that, because that's not considered all that important. What people talk about with her was how extraordinarily loving she was and how completely compassionate she was with everybody because she herself had suffered so much. There just didn't seem to be anybody that she met who she excluded because she realized, you know, sometimes the suffering is obvious, sometimes it's just a potential, but it's there. And so her compassion was, it really did seem infinite. So that's what we talk about. You know, that's what we really commemorate. Although she had one power, I wrote about it, I can't quite remember, something like she could, she could bake a potato in her hand and make it taste like chocolate, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, and then she got older. You know, we met her, she was getting quite frail again. And then... Uh, she couldn't attain that level of of mastery anymore, and it, it started to go away, but it didn't matter. There's some level of concentration, not that level, but some level of concentration we need, otherwise we're just sitting and thinking all the time. We're not really practicing at all. And thinking doesn't mean the arising of thoughts, it means being lost in thoughts all the time. We need the power of concentration. We need the happiness of concentration and the joy of it. As I said, the, the classical approach, like in the time of the Buddha, was for somebody to do an object of concentration practice for some period of time and only then open up their minds to insight, to really looking at the nature of things, to watching thoughts come and go, to watching sensations come and go. But around the turn of the last century, there was kind of a social revolution in Buddhism where, <clears throat> and especially in Burma, where uh, 
the founder of this school, Mahasi Sayadaw, said that he taught that in his understanding, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to first do a practice that was solely based on concentration and only then switch to insight. You could actually begin right away with mindfulness or insight practice. And you would develop all the concentration that you needed if your mindfulness was continuous enough. So you don't have to go off into the forest and the roots of trees and you know, contemplate something intensively for months or years and only then develop insight. You could do it right away. But what will cut through the surface of things, what will gather one's energy, what will give us the five jhanic factors, what will give us steadiness of mind is a continuity of mindfulness. And so that became kind of the norm of practice. Concentration and mindfulness support each other. They go together. But depending on what the critical, essential foundation of the practice is seen to be, they're different. You know, if you want to develop concentration practice, you have to really try to minimize to the extent you possibly can all of the distractions that might arise. And if you want to develop mindfulness practice primarily, then you have to recognize the fact that mindfulness can go anywhere, that while we come to a quiet place like this to foster the concentration as well, you can be mindful anywhere, under any circumstance, that this is really the basis of freedom. You know, if you're sitting here in the hall and you're in extraordinary bliss because you're so highly concentrated and then someone sneezes, you can be mindful of the bliss, you can be mindful of the sound, you can be mindful of your anger about the sound, you can be mindful of your vengeful fantasies, you can be mindful of everything. And you haven't lost anything because the experience has turned on a dime from being blissful to being painful. We say that mindfulness doesn't take the shape of what it's watching. It doesn't get ruined because what it's looking at is, is not lustrous and wonderful. That's why mindfulness, rather than just the sheer force of concentration, is the essence of our practice, because that is the essence of freedom. If we're paying attention, not just trying to gather our energy in and stabilize our minds on the breath, but if we're watching the nature of the knee pain that arises, and the anger, and the sleepiness, and the restlessness, and the joy, if we're practicing mindfulness, then we begin more clearly to see the nature of our lives. We see that the mind and body are inseparable, but in fact they're distinguishable. When we move our hand, the physical reality is one thing. There's stiffness, tension, pain, whatever. And the mind which knows it, the consciousness that observes it, is a different thing. Which doesn't mean they're split and not connected, And they're tremendously related and connected. They're interdependent. But you can distinguish their function. That's the beginning of insight, is to see that. How 
They relate to one another. The body and mind relate to one another through conditionality, through cause and effect. The mind will condition the body. You know, we'll have an intention to move, arise in the mind. The body will move. There'll be a new sensation. And the body will condition the mind. We have a painful feeling. We don't like it. The intention arises to move away from that pain because we don't like it. You know, we want to move, we want to jump, we want to get out of here, anything. We see all the different ways that the mind and body relate. This great interplay of one thing affecting the other. And because of that, we see that what has seemed so solid and so unmoving and so so stagnant is always moving. It's a changing flow of events all of the time. That's our reality. Sometimes in practicing mindfulness, what we're seeing most clearly is the impermanence of things. And this doesn't always come with a great cognitive understanding. You know, it's not like um, a message comes really strongly that says, well, now you're seeing the impermanence of things. It just happens. It's, it's quite intuitive. Sometimes you don't even know what's significant about, about what's arising. There are times when, in seeing the impermanence of things, the mind is naturally alighting upon the beginnings of objects. You're seeing the beginning of the thought or the beginning of the pain, and you don't quite know what happens to it. And when our minds are landing on the beginnings of things, then everything feels very clear and and luminous and wonderful. It's like we're watching rebirth, renewal all of the time, watching the world get created, and we feel great. Sometimes when we're noticing impermanence, the mind is just naturally alighting on the endings of objects. These are the times you feel like you can't catch anything, you can't note. It's like a veil has descended between you and, and your abdomen, and you can't feel the breath that clearly, and, and everything's kind of foggy, and it's all just passing away and passing away. And It doesn't feel very good. Either you, know, you think your meditation's fallen apart because you don't have that satisfying sense anymore, or it's just very distressing. You're uneasy because you can't hold on to anything. You can't make contact with anything. It can be frightening. It's very distressing. and It doesn't feel very good, but it's good meditation. Sometimes, talking about not feeling very good, the characteristic that is most predominant is dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, or suffering. And what we are picking up, whatever we're looking at, is its unsatisfactory nature. Now this also doesn't come through usually as a kind of message from beyond, you know, like, oh, you're seeing dukkha now. But it, it comes through very personally. We don't feel good. We don't feel at ease. We don't feel we have a home. We feel lonely. We feel wretched. And it takes a tremendous kind of dispassionate observation to realize that this is actually an impersonal truth we're seeing. It's not, it's coming in the form maybe of our personal story, but it's not about a personal story. It's just one angle on the truth of things, and it's very true. It's not the only way to see life, but it's definitely a, a 
cornerstone of, of seeing clearly. But none of those meditation sessions feel good when that's what we're into. And sometimes what the mind is just landing on more naturally is the impersonality of things or the emptiness of things. And those tend to be times where things are very open, they're spacious, they're transparent. Things are calm, things are peaceful. We like those again. But nothing stays. And many descriptions of, of the path of insight have us going through ever-deepening cycles of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and emptiness and impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and emptiness in that order or in different orders sometimes. And so when you're in that clear and open and extraordinary spacious place, seeing emptiness everywhere and suddenly you're back in dukkha, it doesn't mean something's gone wrong. It's just the, the next step in the progression. It's really very impersonal actually. And so what we're always talking about here, too, is balance. Not getting elated when things feel great, because they're going to change. Not getting despondent when things feel difficult, because it doesn't mean something's gone wrong. But practicing to the best of our ability, being as mindful as we can, seeing into what is actually happening right now, So that's the distinction between those two streams of practice. If we focus on and count on and crave concentration and cultivate it exclusively, it'll bring us power. Whereas mindfulness, seeing the nature of things, seeing the three characteristics of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and emptiness will bring us freedom. And actually we do both here in different combinations. But what's important to remember is that whatever particular path we are cultivating at any given time, it's important to remember where freedom lies. And it's important to remember that we always have the capacity. You know, not all of us will be able to bake a potato in our hand and make it taste like chocolate, but all of us actually can free our minds from grasping aversion and delusion through practicing mindfulness. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.